welcome to the Masters in Psychology podcast, where psychology students can learn from psychologists, educators, and practitioners to better understand what they do, how they got there, and hear the advice they have for those interested in getting a graduate degree in psychology. I'm your host, Brad Schumacher, and today we are privileged to welcome Dr. Earl Turner. Dr. Earl is an award-winning psychologist and assistant professor of psychology at Pepperdine University. He received his BS in psychology from Louisiana State University and his MS and PhD in clinical psychology from Texas A&M University. Dr. Turner writes a blog, The Race to Good Health, and is host of a mental health podcast called The Breakdown with Dr. Earl. Dr. Turner is also the founder and executive director of Therapy for Black Kids, which was created during the pandemic. Dr. Turner, welcome to our podcast. Thank you for having me. I appreciate you getting on the show, and I apologize. I, I went back and forth between your name. I wasn't sure if, to, if I should call you Dr. <laughs> Earl or Dr. Turner. I'll go ahead and call you Dr. Turner unless you tell me otherwise. So I appreciate you no taking worries. the time. Um, uh, just to start off, tell us a little bit about yourself so we get into uh, uh, knowing a little bit more about you before we start talking about some of your academic journey. Absolutely. So you read my bio, so that gives you a little bit of information about who I am. Um, I am currently teaching primarily here in Los Angeles. Um, however, I am still licensed um, as a psychologist. And so I've maintained that um, license for about eight years now since um, I got my license after finishing uh, my postdoc um, um, however many years ago. <laughs> um, but um, I really do enjoy teaching. Um, and so as we probably will get into the discussion, um, I started my journey out after postdoc uh, doing clinical work um, full-time and then made that transition because I wanted to, to get back into um, being able to do research and, and working in a clinical setting where you're seeing uh, patients and clients all day makes it very difficult um, to do so. And so I've sort of shifted um, my, my work over that time to, to do more teaching and also provide me with more opportunities to be able to provide some mentorship um, to students um, as well. And so um, that's why I have um, enjoyed that transition to be able to to, to be more involved um, in that aspect of it. And then, um, as you sort of mentioned, um, I do a lot of work with the media. Um, and for me, part of that is really center around, centered around um, focusing on mental health awareness um, and, and really sort of um, letting individuals know that uh, therapy is um, useful for everyone and that you don't have to necessarily have a diagnosis and particularly trying to break down some of the barriers around mental health use uh, within communities of color. Well, thank you for that summary. You, you saved me some time uh, later on. Um, but what we usually do on the, on the podcast is really understand, you know, which schools you went to, how you decided to go into those schools and specific programs. So we usually go in chronological order. Tell us a little bit more about your undergraduate experiences at Louisiana State. For example, how and why did you choose LSU for your BS? Yeah, so I am a Louisiana native. Um, born and raised in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, which is where um, LSU is located. And so I made that um, decision to go to that school primarily because I wanted to stay close to home. Um, and so they have a really strong um, psychology program there for, for both the undergrad as well as the doctoral program. Um, and so it felt like uh, um, the best fit for me at that time to get my, um, my training um, as well as being able to to get some additional experience from experts within the field. 
Um, I will say that um, as many people sort of do, I made a shift from focusing in on psychology later in my undergraduate career. Um, and so I actually started off majoring in microbiology uh, with, with plans to be a pediatrician um, and go to medical school. And I took, um, I took a child psychology course, um, I think my second year of undergrad, and it just felt um, like that was, that fit better uh, with who I was and sort of what I wanted to do in terms of helping children and families. And so I um, changed my major to psychology and then began to to do more work with some of the professors there at LSU where I um, had some opportunities to, to learn more about uh, clinical research and, and, and had a chance to work with one professor there who was working at a, um, a hospital and they had an outpatient clinic focused on ADHD. And so I had an opportunity to assist with some research um, in that area, as well as just sort of supervise what um, some behavioral consultation looked like uh, within an integrated uh, sort of behavioral health um, setting. And so that sort of, again, validated my interest in, in being able to do that work and, and, and my desire to, to specialize in child psychology as I um, continue throughout my career. Well, thank you for that summary, because my next question would have been, when did you know you were going to focus on psychology? And you already answered that. And after you attended uh, LSU, you actually went to Texas A&M for your master's and your, your PhD, and you decided to uh, focus more on clinical psychology. So why Texas A&M? And tell us a little bit about your uh, thought process there. Yeah, so I, I, I applied to several schools. Um, I think for me, it... I didn't have like a long list of, of 10, 15 schools. I think I had about five to seven schools that I um, applied to at the time. And um, for me, as I sort of made some decisions about that, I'm really trying to find a place where there was faculty that, um, you know, has some experience in the areas that I wanted to focus on and particularly thinking about child psychology. So um, the programs that I considered um, looked at those particular areas and um, I ended up deciding on Texas A&M because of a faculty person there that was doing um, some work and, and had specialization in, in uh, clinical child psychology. And um, I also got a diversity uh, fellowship um, to attend the university as well. So obviously like that swayed, that swayed my decision a little bit, um, being a first generation um, college student, um, having that sort of financial support um, was really helpful for me um, throughout my graduate training. As we know, um, graduate degrees are not um, cheap. And so that really that did help sort of take some of that, that load of, of debt um, that can be, um, that can result from attending uh, graduate programs. Was it a um, easy transition for you uh, going from one state to Texas like that? Or, or were there some difficulties in, in getting used to the culture? Talk about that for a second. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, Texas is not that far from Louisiana. Mm -hmm. um, and so it, it that helped a little bit being able to um, to visit, you know, often. Um, and so being able to, you know, make a drive um, home to see family was definitely something that was helpful for me in terms of, of being um, in graduate school. And, um, and I think adjusting to some of the culture. Um, so, I mean, a lot has changed at A&M over the years in terms of um, diversity. It's still a small college town. 
Um, and so I think there is some similarities in, in that aspect for me in terms of going to LSU where it's a very, it's a, it's a college town. And so the, the surrounding area um, that was sort of similar um, at a and um, to, to what I had experienced at LSU. And so it wasn't that big of a difference in, in jump. Um, but I will say that being able to like be a little bit closer to home. So I didn't have to worry about like booking a flight, um, you know, to travel made um, it easier for me to sort of be able to, to go home and visit, you know, during holidays. Yeah, you're not alone. Uh, a lot of people uh, do go a little closer to home when they uh, uh, go off to school. And then after that, maybe they are a little bit more brave and more confident going to a, a school uh, farther away from their home or where they grew up. Uh, you had mentioned, yes, it was nice because a uh, faculty member was doing the same kind of research that you were very interested in. Uh, the financial backing and the, and the help there and then being close to home are some of the uh, uh, main reasons. In hindsight, when you look back to uh, both your master's, doctorate, and even your undergrad, uh, were there other factors that came into play? And if so, what were those? Um, and what kind of advice would you give our audience? Uh, you're, you have one experience, and, and you chose schools for certain reasons. But in hindsight, now that you've been uh, uh, through this and uh, a professor for a while and on tenure track, what kind of advice would you give to uh, students who are looking to go to a graduate school in psychology? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, definitely doing your research to figure out um, sort of what their graduates are doing. And so for me, in terms of factoring into my decision, that was one of the questions that I looked at is, you know, where are, where, where are their graduates currently working? Um, at the time, a lot of the um, graduates from the university were doing clinical work. And so for me, that was something that I had a, a strong interest in doing, um, I, being able to sort of have those tools to be able to provide treatment intervention uh, was important to me because I, I recognized that there, there are not as many, um, you know, black psychologists, therapists in the profession. And so being able to address some of that need was important to me. And so that, um, factored into my decisions to sort of look at programs that had graduates that were um, doing clinical work and that had been able to, um, you know, get licensed. And, and I don't know if we'll get into sort of, you know, some of the challenges around that. Um, but having that knowledge was really important for me. Um, and, and the other piece of that was knowing that um, having a graduate degree also provided some opportunities to potentially teach um, as well. And so I wanted to be able to have that balance. And I feel like um, for me, that decision to go to A&M provide opportunities for me to sort of get the, the strong clinical um, foundation and background that I wanted to, to be able to go out into the profession and, and become licensed, um, but also to get some experience to, to be able to, to teach um, as well. And so I think as, as students sort of evaluate their decisions, thinking about, you know, where graduates um, asking questions about the faculty support. Um, I know that in my current role, students that I've interviewed, that's a good question and, and valid question that, you know, I've had students ask about how much support they get in the programs. Um, and so I think that, you know, that's a really important question for students to ask as well um, so that you can be successful. Um, it's, it's a lot of hard work. And so you do want to make sure that you, you have the support that you need and the resources um, as well. 
Very good advice. Um, you mentioned one thing that I was going to ask a little later on, but I'll ask it now because it's a good transition. You had mentioned that there aren't many uh, uh, black uh, psychology faculty, let alone black psychologists in the United States. And based on my research, I found that the, the uh, vast majority are white between 70 and 88 percent. Why do you think, and I know that some of your work is focused on trying to uh, debunk the myth and, and overcome this challenge of um, uh, people of color being afraid or, or almost not knowing how to get started into this field. So why do you think there is such a disproportionate number of culturally diverse psychology professors in the academic field? I mean, I think one of it is sort of the the stigma that comes along with it. And so obviously I think if, if a community is reluctant to utilize therapy and mental health services, then um, it may make some individuals also reluctant to like go into that profession because of how they may be perceived as individuals working uh, within those systems. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the other challenge that comes up, and this is something that I um, have really been trying to um, advocate for and, and, and to support in, in many different ways is that um, for some individuals, they don't have the support to like learn about how to get into those programs. And so what does that process look like and, and, and how do you prepare yourself um, to be potentially um, competitive to get, in, to get into those programs? Um, and then the cost. I mean, I think I, um, I, I published an article a couple of years ago um, and it um, really focused on looking at for, for Black males specifically, um, what are some of the reasons why they don't um, decide to go to graduate programs and obviously we can have a, a, a lengthier conversation <laughs> about some of the challenges around that. But uh, from that survey data that I had collected, some of the things that that sort of stood out were some of the financial um, obligations. Um, there's a huge time commitment um, to go into a graduate program that sometimes um, doesn't make it easy for you to um, to work and go to school. And so that, you know, you know, prevents some people from from um focusing in on, on their education piece because they do have to provide, you know, for themselves or for their families. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that's another uh, factor because of some of the systemic issues within um, academic universities that make, make it difficult um, to diversify um, the profession um, as well. And we can, I mean, again, talk about some of the bias within the application process and, and those types of things that also prevent um, getting more individuals from diverse backgrounds into the profession as well. Yeah, you mentioned a couple of things that I have found in my research as well. The stigma that uh, goes along with it sometimes in, in different areas, financial, and then just not knowing where to start or who to reach out to and, and contacts and support. And then the, the fear or um, concern of having um, support if and when you do get admitted. Is this a good school that will, will help support me and my background and, and uh, my way of thinking and how I want to approach this? And so I think those are um, very valid reasons. And that leads us to the question, well, how can we help increase these numbers? You already mentioned a few ways, obviously helping overcome the stigma. Your work um, um, within the field as well, uh, within your communities is, is helping. And we're going to talk about therapy for black kids a little later on and, and other things that you have done. But let's finish talking about your academic uh, journey a little bit. Um, 
What did you do immediately after finishing your doctorate? Yeah, so um, as a um, clinical psychology graduate, uh, we have to to do an internship, and then we have to also get those additional hours um, to be licensed. And so once I finished my degree, um, I did a two-year clinical postdoc um, fellowship in Baltimore, Maryland through the Kennedy Krieger Institute, which is a um, children's hospital that's affiliated with, with, with John Hopkins um, University. Um, and so I did a two-year postdoc there uh, working in a behavior management clinic, uh, focusing on a variety of issues uh, with children from things like ADHD to, to sleeping and toileting issues um, to more disruptive um, disorders such as oppositional um, defiant disorder. Um, and so that allowed me one opportunities to get some more clinical um, experience, but also to, to get those hours um, that I needed to be able to get licensed. And so that's what I did immediately after um, graduate school. And then once I got my hours, I got licensed um, in the state of Maryland. Um, and then I accepted a, um, a clinical uh, faculty position. In, in Richmond, Virginia, um, through Virginia Commonwealth University. And so there um, I worked at the uh, Virginia Treatment Center for Children uh, for a couple of years, um, providing primarily outpatient um, services to children and families, um, but also did some work with um, inpatient services, as well as provided some supervision through their um, APA accredited internship um, site. And so we, we had interns that um, also worked there. And so I did some supervision of trainees there for a little bit of time uh, while I was working there. So that was sort of my transition from graduate school directly into the profession. Well, thank you for confirming that. I didn't see the dates of your uh, graduation. I knew when you started uh, going into your postdoc. Uh, and then after that, you went to VCU School of Medicine as well, uh, uh, I think in 2012 and 13. And then I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, after that, you had the opportunity to go to the University of Houston downtown in 2014 and as an assistant professor of psychology. So you basically moved from, I believe, Virginia to Texas. So you've been all over. Uh, tell us how you uh, decided to uh, uh, go to UHD. Yeah, so part of that decision was really um, getting back into doing some, some teaching um, and, and research. And so after working in a, in a space where um, I was doing clinical work full-time, you know, working, you know, 60 plus um, hours and not really having some dedicated time to, to write, um, I, I wanted to sort of make uh, um, a transition to be able to, to have time to do more writing and do some more research. Um, and so I made that decision to, to look for faculty jobs and, and landed at UHD. Um, and, and taking me back to Texas, um, which was, again, a, a great opportunity to be a little bit closer um, to home, to family in Louisiana. Um, and so I accepted that position, uh, primarily teaching um, undergraduate students. So um, UHD is an undergraduate campus, uh, primarily Hispanic-serving um, institution. Um, and so being able to sort of provide some mentorship um, to students of color uh, was something that I really enjoyed um, about that particular um, university and that um, I was also able to, uh, to get back into to writing and doing some research. Um, and, and 
really getting back to publishing because uh, there was a, a break of time when I was on postdoc where I didn't get a chance to, um, to get, you know, continue my publishing. And so I, I, I think if I recall the timeline correct, um, I had published some part of my dissertation um, during postdoc. And then when I started my first um, position um, at BCU, there was a, a, a gap in terms of me being able to submit anything for publication because I didn't have time to do that. And so um, I submitted a second, um, second part of my dissertation data, um, I think when I was at UHD. Um, so that sort of spearheaded me being able to get back into my writing. Well, hopefully you saw I shared the screen and here's a nice uh, earlier picture of you at UHD as well. Nice smile and, and uh, gave some good background on what you're doing. He even talked about your courses that you taught um, for the undergrad and then, um, you know, some of your qualifications and, and more information that uh, you had here as well. So it was kind of nice doing that. That's the fun part of, of uh, doing all this research is finding all this stuff uh, um, and your academic journey. And then now you're at Pepperdine University. And uh, when did you start at Pepperdine? I know that you were at uh, UHD for uh, uh, one or two or three years, and then you, you went to Pepperdine. Yeah, Tell us a little bit more at, about that. I was at UHD for, I want to say about four years, actually. Okay. Um, so I transitioned to Pepperdine, ironically, uh, six months before the pandemic hit. <laughs> so, oh, wow. <laughs> um, it's been an interesting transition, and, and I haven't been here as, you know, going on, I guess, going on two years now. Um, that I've been here on, on faculty in a tenure track position as an assistant professor. Um, and so uh, um, it's been great so far. Um, obviously, transitions, um, you know, take some time and the pandemic has not helped with right. adjustment. Um, but so far, I've enjoyed being able to um, continue doing some teaching and some other work that I've been able to do uh, with, with media and, and other things that I have going on uh, related to media psychology. Well, good. And for the audience, I wanted to kind of remind everybody that Pepperdine is a private Christian research uh, university. It was actually founded by entrepreneur George Pepperdine in South Los Angeles about 1937. They expanded to Malibu in 72. And now you have multiple locations uh, in, in various areas as well. And so how did you decide, you gave us the background on how you ended up at uh, UHD, how did you decide to apply for and eventually accept uh, going and working uh, at Pepperdine? Yeah, I, I think, you know, leaving USD was a difficult decision because it was um, me leaving, being closer to home right. um, in Louisiana. Um, but at the same time, I've always wanted to have more um, opportunities to mentor students and uh, particularly students um, that are interested in going into the profession as um, therapists and counselors and psychologists. And so um, after being at UHD for some time um, and not being able to, to do that because I was working with undergrads, um, I, I went on the, on the, the job market and um, landed at, at Pepperdine. Um, and so as you sort of mentioned, Pepperdine has several different graduate programs. Um, Right now, I'm teaching um, uh, in a mixture between the uh, master's program um, that we have, and they have several different master's programs, um, and also the PsyD program, so Doctor of uh, Psychology program here. Um, and so um, that decision for me 
to, to start at Pepperdine was really focused in on being able to provide some more um, mentorship to, to graduate students and, the, and to teach in a graduate program. And so um, I have enjoyed that um, so far. Um, it, it's great to have some, a little bit more connection to sort of the clinical area since I'm not actually doing therapy right now. And so I can sort of share my clinical experiences with students that are interested in, in going into the field so that they can sort of learn a little bit more outside of just what, what's um, in the textbooks that they may be reading. Yeah, so that's a nice summary of, of Pepperdine. And you mentioned that you're on the tenure track. And uh, I don't want me to dive into this too much, but I know that different universities and different colleges and schools and programs have different criteria depending on if they're research one, two, or three institutions. So Pepperdine, kind of give us a high level view of, you know, what is it going to take you to um, get tenure and what are they looking at? Yeah, well, I mean, there's a lot of similarities. And as you sort of um, mentioned, it does differ across universities. But um, in terms of the areas of focus that they're looking at, um, you know, teaching, scholarship, um, as well as service or some of those same areas that that um, are, are going to be looked at um, here in terms of my own tenure process. Um, I think that the additional um, area that is focused on given, as you sort of mentioned a second ago, related to the connection with sort of Christianity and, and, and spirituality, um, is sort of that commitment um, to, um, to, to Christianity. Um, and so that's another area in terms of like my own involvement and, and sort of my own um, identity related to, 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 to religion. Um, and so I, I do consider myself to be a religious person. And, and that was also something that I um, sort of considered when I applied for this position and, um, and gave me a different um, opportunity to be able to sort of connect my own sort of faith to um, the work that I do and, and some of the areas specifically connected to my research, um, looking at um, African-Americans or the Black community and sort of understanding how religion and spirituality uh, are a helpful parts of resilience, but also um, looking at what's that connection between um, therapy use as well. And, and so there, there has been historically some research that really has looked at, you know, for um, individuals that may have a strong sort of spiritual or religious connection that that could potentially also serve as a barrier for them in terms of seeking services uh, because they may have preferences for um, seeking out uh, religious or spiritual um, coping practices or, or pastoral types of counseling um, as well. And so um, that has been a consideration for me in terms of um, this particular position and being able to sort of continue that area of my research, which really um, also is connected to some of the focuses uh, within the university. Mm -hmm. A lot of community-based uh, research and, and direction and, and um, looking at all of your VITA and, and your current research as well. You had mentioned uh, earlier that uh, one of the reasons why you attended a university was the faculty and then obviously some uh, um, monetary backing and, and a fellowship and, and that sort of stuff. I usually ask this of all my guests because our guests are usually asking, well, any advice for us regarding funding or other alternatives? Um, anything that comes to mind uh, for you, um, your experience, and then other advice that you give students in terms of, hey, I can't afford it. So what other alternative fundings uh, are available out there? Yeah, 
I think, you know, one of the things that I oftentimes talked uh, a lot about with some of my um, undergraduate students is really considering, like, what is your timeline? So if you have a family or you are working full time, um, are you flexible with the idea of, of doing a part time um, graduate program, which is going to take longer, but you can still sort of um, accomplish your particular goal. And so really sort of thinking about that and, and really um, identifying like your own timeline about this career process, because I think that just the way that the systems are set up, it's like you go to undergrad, you might take a break off between undergrad and, and, a, and a graduate program. But for most people, it's undergrad graduate program, whether that's master's or straight into a doctoral program, and then, you know, entering into the profession. Um, and so really sort of re-envisioning um, sort of what that can look like for you and being able to sort of uh, find the path that's going to work best. And that may be, you know, going to a part-time program and maybe going to a master's program first, which is going to be less, um, and then going into a doctoral program. Um, and then I think, you know, really looking for um, opportunities for different types of scholarships. And so sometimes they're not always advertised. And so just sort of, again, doing your research at the universities to see what is offered, either not just within the department, but at the university level, um, because some universities offer university scholarships um, that are not just sort of offered through like the department um, or, or, or advertised through the department. And so I think those are things that, that students have to sort of consider and look into as well. No, very good uh, suggestions and different ways of looking at it uh, and, and uh, considering, hey, this isn't for me, maybe part-time is going to be better for me and it might work out, but at least providing that support and, and different avenues. Um, I'm going to go ahead and share my screen, uh, your main uh, website here. And while I do that, I should, I, I want to congratulate you because I did find out when I was doing the research that you were recently, uh, you were the first black male to serve as president of the Society for Child and Family Policy and Practice, which is the APA Division 37. And I believe that was in 2020. So now you're, now you're uh, outgoing and somebody else has replaced you. But congratulations, that's a first. And, and uh, I know that you're also involved with other areas of APA, also a member of ABSI. Um, for those uh, students who want to get more involved in those type of organizations and associations, any advice for them and, and how did you get involved? Um, kind of answer that while I bring up your website. Yeah. Well, first, thanks for um, the congratulations on, on that um, role. I, as, as you mentioned, have been um, involved in, in leadership for a long time. Um, and so I um, started my leadership um, experiences as a graduate student. So um, I served on a committee for graduate students through the American Psychological Association of Graduate Students, which is a student organization uh, within APA. Um, and so I started there where I was on a committee uh, for two years and then I was elected as a student member to serve on the um, APEX committee um, as their member at large uh, practice focus. Um, and so I've been um, doing leadership work for about 15 years or so um, through my graduate career. And so I usually encourage students that if you want to, one, get some more uh, mentorship or to get more connected to um, the profession, that um, student organizations are great ways to do that. Um, and so many associations and professional organizations have um, student memberships. And so 
join those memberships if you can't afford them. Um, some organizations offer free memberships for students. And so again, um, you may just have to do a little bit of, of research and work. Um, for APA, there, there's APACs um, that you can get involved in. Each division within the American Psychological Association also has um, you know, student committees oftentimes or ways to sort of get involved. Um, Association of Black Psychologists or ABSI um, also has a student circle and, and, and they often have many chapters of student circles within different states, uh, which is another way um, to sort of get connected and, and, um, and particularly when you're in graduate school, um, you know, to, to connect with other students uh, from your own background and identity uh, can be really helpful and important. Um, and so look into those opportunities, go to that website, uh, reach out to the, the student uh, reps uh, for those organizations and find out how you can um, get connected. Um, I also recently, um, I think two years ago now, um, founded a um, leadership institute for APA Division 53, which is Society for Clinical Child and Adolescent Psychology. Um, and so we just had our second leadership institute um, this month um, and, and that is really focused on providing some uh, mentorship opportunities as well as leadership um, development for um, students from diverse ethnic racial backgrounds as well as thinking about those that may be from other marginalized communities um, such as within LGBT uh, communities or, or those with disabilities um, as well. So just a range of, of diversity. Um, and so that Leadership Institute uh, was really founded to sort of build a leadership pipeline Mm -hmm. um, and so um, I'm really excited about that um, and, and to have the support uh, from APA Division 53 um, to, to fund that initiative and continue to sort of support students um, in terms of their own development. Wow, that was a lot of information. I appreciate you going through that. And while you were talking, I was sharing your website and then I did show for the audience those two different societies and, and APA divisions, uh, APA Division uh, 37 and 53. Uh, and um, you've just been so busy and you're continuing to stay busy even last <laughs> night, I believe, unless you, it was canceled. In fact, you had an event yesterday at Walden University, the Talks for Good panel. How did that go? It went well. So ye yesterday was a busy day. Um, speaking of leadership, I started my day with a um, seven o'clock meeting uh, here in California uh, with some APA staff and, and some legislatures on, on Capitol Hill um, understanding um, concerns around sort of police brutality and police reform. And then a, a rest of a busy day and, and sort of ended my day uh, with this panel discussion with Walden. And then I did a, I've been doing a Instagram live series for Men's Health Week on mental health. Um, and so that was after that panel discussion. So definitely a lot um, of things going on, but um, really I'm excited that about the panel discussion um, yesterday, particularly talking about um, sort of the impact of, of COVID on children and families and what are some ways that um, families and schools and communities can help children as we sort of transition um, back post-pandemic. Well, I'm glad to hear that uh, you made it through. I, you know, I, I, I'm I applaud you for getting up early and then uh, starting your day again today and then getting on our uh, uh, podcast. A couple other items. I know that you have to leave here pretty quick. And so I wanted to cover these items as well. Tell us a little bit more about your mental health podcast, The Breakdown with Dr. Earl. When did it get started? How'd you come up with the idea? That sort of stuff. And I'll go ahead and bring up that website while you're uh, talking about it. 
Yeah, so um, I started the podcast in 2019, I think, about two years ago. Um, so I just, um, I'm about to wrap up the fourth season um, of the podcast. Um, and so there are a lot of mental health podcasts that exist. And so I was a little bit reluctant to um, like get into this, the podcast world um, at that time. And I had several uh, friends and colleagues that um, also had podcasts. Um, and so after some like, continuous encouragement um, and also me just sort of really thinking about like, what, what am I adding to um, podcasts? Um, I decided to, to focus on issues related to black boys and men. Um, and so again, for me, the idea about uh, sort of stigma in the black community and, and really uh, bringing some awareness to different types of mental health issues, um, but also highlighting, um, you know, black um, professionals and therapists and, and individuals that are, that are advocates uh, for mental health in the black community um, to have those conversations and uh, really adding in um, the lens of, of psychology and, and psychological science to that discussion. So we're not just sort of talking about mental health, but also adding that sort of expertise um, in there as well. And so um, it's been great doing the podcast. I'm, I've been uh, really humbled by the guests that I've had on and, and what I've learned from them um, as well throughout this time period. Um, and just being able to sort of share, I think, you know, it's often um, challenging or difficult to have conversations around mental health with, with men. Um, and so I think the, the podcast has really been helpful to sort of spark some of those conversations and, and to increase our awareness about, you know, men can also be able to experience traumas and difficulties and, and, and be able to sort of navigate those things and that it's okay to express a range of our emotions. Well, I'm glad that you shared that because that leads us into the final topic before I have uh, some fun questions at the end here for you. Uh, I, I mentioned uh, therapy for black kids. Tell us a little bit more about this. How and when did that get started? And I'll go ahead and share the uh, website for that. Yes. Yeah, so I um, started therapy for black kids. Um, the idea came to me actually during the pandemic, um, but it wasn't until earlier this year in February of 2021 um, that the, the content um, and the website was released. Um, and really the focus of being able to make sure that we um, address the needs uh, of Black youth. And so I recognize that in the midst of the sort of racial um, reckoning this last summer that a lot of conversations were focused in on, on adults um, and not so much on kids and specifically Black kids. Um, and so I wanted to provide some resources, information uh, for parents as ways to, um, to help kids sort of cope and navigate these challenges around dealing with race, racism and racial injustice, but also the idea of just focusing on, on, on healthy emotional development. And so I think that's a, a part of the um, sort of development that's oftentimes left out, particularly if we talk about schools um, and how schools don't really spend a lot of time and sort of about emotional aware, awareness. Um, and so I really wanted to sort of do this as a way to give parents some tools um, to do that. And so uh, Therapy for Black Kids, um, we try to host events about once a month, uh, focus on a variety of topics. Um, and so at this point, um, and people can go to the uh, website and, and get to the social media pages and the Facebook page. Um, but we've had 
uh, events around autism awareness and talking about autism in the black community. Uh, we've talked about, again, uh, coping with racism and, and fostering some, some support for that. Uh, we've also talked about other ways to engage in um, sort of resiliency and, and, and racial ethnic socialization through talking about sort of career paths and sort of career exploration uh, with kids and sort of what that means to, to talk with them about other options um, that they have in terms of going into careers in science and math um, or even psychology, for example. Mm -hmm. um, two last questions before we let you go. Uh, you have any specific advice for, for black students or, or um, particularly black students are interested in attending uh, graduate school for psychology or just in general, any uh, advice for uh, specifically design for, for black students who are interested in furthering their uh, academic career? Yeah, I mean, I would definitely say, you know, mentorship is really important. And so there may not be opportunities to, uh, at your, let's say, undergrad university to, to have a black faculty person that you can sort of get connected with. And so Definitely um, consider going to conferences as an undergrad that those are really great opportunities to do some networking and, you know, give people's business cards or, or find out about their websites and reach out to them and set up an email to maybe ask them some questions. Um, think about mentoring as not that it always has to be like this ongoing relationship um, that's helpful and that's great, but sometimes you can, you know, pick someone's brain or, or chat with them for 30 minutes or an hour um, and get some really helpful information about the graduate school process. And so um, I've had students reach out to me um, before and um, think last year sometime I had like a conversation with, with a student who was interested in going into applying for a, a, a doctoral program um, mm -hmm. in psychology. And so, you know, giving, giving him some advice um, about that and, and, and talk with him, was, I, I thought was helpful. And, and he sort of expressed that to me. So I would say, you know, reach out to people um, most uh, faculty are pretty um, open, time permitting to sort of communicate. And so um, don't be afraid to like send an email to say, I'm impressed by your work or I have an interest in a similar topic. Uh, would you have some time to maybe answer some questions um, about, about getting into a career as a psychologist? Very good suggestions. I'd also add that some of our audience have asked a little bit more detail on HBCUs as well, historically black colleges and universities. And we're in response to that, we're working on including a comprehensive list on our website for that. So that's another way to, to um, uh, help out. Um, some of the fun questions, I know you have to leave in, in like a minute here. Um, we always ask our, our guests a couple fun questions. One is what is your favorite term, principle or theory and why? Um, I, I mean, I think for me, probably my favorite um, approach is going to be like um, looking at cognitive theories. And so I think the way that we sort of think about life and approach life um, is important and it does shape our interactions. And so, you know, for me, particularly during the pandemic, I've been talking a lot about like giving ourselves grace and like, you know, we have to really shift the way that we think about life um, at this point and even moving forward. Um, so I think that would probably be the thing that um, sticks the most for me. Okay. And along the same lines, and this is going to be a little tougher for you, what's the most important thing that you've learned in your life? Um, I would probably say like the, the most important thing is to like continue, um, continue fighting for whatever is important to you. Um, and so I, I think like for me, understanding like this whole graduate journey, um, being a first generation uh, college student, um, 
I, I had aspirations to go to, to graduate school or get an advanced degree. I didn't really know what that looked like at the time. Um, and so just sort of continuing to, to learn and to explore and to get information. Um, and that has really helped me to sort of continue uh, my career and, and, and sort of continue to advance and grow um, throughout this profession. Dr. Turner, I know you have to get going. I appreciate your time and willingness to share your thoughts and experiences and especially the advice with our listeners. Uh, thanks again for your time. Uh, let's keep in touch and I will uh, uh, definitely share a little bit more about your um, uh, work and, and your uh, websites on our website when we actually post this. So uh, is there anything else that you'd like to bring up or discuss on this podcast? Um, that's it. I think, again, you uh, can visit my website, DrErlangaTurner.com, or connect with me on social media at Dr. Earl Turner and, and find more about my work um, or any sort of events that are going to be coming up. I appreciate the time. Have a great rest of the day. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the Masters in Psychology podcast. If you want to learn more about our guest or listen to other podcasts, you can visit our website, mastersinpsychology.com, where you can search through all of the schools in the United States that offer advanced degrees in psychology. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And remember, if you enjoyed this podcast, please like, follow, or share.